Proverbs 5, 15 through 23. And this is a father giving wisdom to his son. And this is what he has to say. And just a heads up, this may get a little explicit today. Just a heads up for, for some of the younger listeners and parents before we dive in. But it is the Bible. All right. Proverbs five fifteen through 23. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, is led astray. Lord, I pray you would speak to us today. Your word is timeless. We know that your word will not return void, but it will go out and accomplish what it sets out to do. I pray for every one of us here that um, we would have open hearts to what you would say to us today as we dive into this topic of sexuality and the glory of God Have your way. Speak to us. Give us ears to hear. Holy Spirit, do a work that that, uh, this guy with a microphone can't do. We ask you to touch our hearts, to touch our lives. Let us leave here differently than we came. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I've been preaching for a while. I remember um, in Bible college, we took a class called homiletics, and the first thing they teach you is you have to build a fire. You have to have a good introduction because an introduction is what hooks people. It's what gets people into it. It gets them excited. It makes them want to hear more. Today, I don't think we need much of an introduction. Sex. Now the introduction's over. Right? Because sexuality is something that stands out to all of us. It screams out to us. So Callians, from the streets, from the billboards, from the beaches, in the grocery aisle, from the magazines, it's all over the place, isn't it? Sexuality surrounds us. And the Bible, Scripture, calls us to a view and a use of sexuality that's profound, that's amazing, and it's unlike anything else, I believe, that I've ever experienced or encountered. The wisdom to it, that there's a wisdom to the biblical view that if you take it into your life, will bring a deep healing and a deep satisfaction into your soul. And, and I long for the day when New City as a church is like a looking glass for people to view in and see the wisdom of God and the, and the biblical view of all of life, including sexuality, and, and gain hope and healing and true satisfaction from it. Amen? So, three points today. Sex is 
glorious. Sex is designed, and sex is powerful. All right, so as we start, I think one of the things we've tried to do in this series is, um, as we look at the Ten Commandments, one of the things you see is it's a lot of thou shalt nots, right? Don't do this. A lot of prohibitive, kind of negative language is how it's cast. But teachers have told us for years how just, just because the, the Ten Commandments are cast in the negative doesn't mean that all of Scripture or the principle there is negative. It means that it's pointing to something very positive and it actually has to flow from something positive. So, for instance, last week we talked about do not kill, right? And that's the negative side of it. But there's a positive counterpart. Be kind. Be loving. Be forgiving, right? Be that. We don't just want a world where people aren't being killed, We also want a world where people are kind and loving and forgiving, right? Or or you look at the the commandment of do not steal. That's the negative side. There's a positive side. What do you think that would be? Be generous. Yeah, yeah. What else? Anything else? Yeah. I'm sorry? Give. Be generous. Yeah, give. Trust God that he's going to provide for you. And The negative side of this, do not commit adultery, you have to understand the positive side in order for it to really impact your life and affect your heart. And the positive side of this is have great sex with your spouse. That's the positive side of this commandment. And so um, if if we start with the negative, we'll never understand the negative. We have to see how it flows from the positive. And the truth is, Christianity kind of gets a bad rap for how it views sex, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, it's not seen as the most progressive view of sexuality. Yet, I would contend, and I hope that by the, by, by the end of today you would agree, that Christianity has a very positive and lovely, amazing view of sex that, that may be a lot more progressive than some of the other views out there in our culture. And... Um, There's a lot of people that are critics of it. For instance, D.H. Lawrence has a quote. He says this, The human body is only coming to real life. With the Greeks, it gave a lovely flicker. Then Plato killed it, and Christianity finished it off. But now the body is coming really to life. So D.H. Lawrence identifies the Christian view with Plato the platonic view of sexuality. And probably a lot of us remember, either from philosophy or history classes, that Plato kind of almost in some ways founded the Gnostic view where where the body is bad, but the soul, the spirit of, of man is good. And so anything that pertains to the body is dirty and tainted and gross. So all of those lower appetites are gross, but you have these higher virtues within you that are healthy and holy. And in D.H. Lawrence's, I mean, if we're, if we're going to be really honest, he does have a point because some of the early church fathers, like uh, Tertullian or even St. Augustine, kind of pulled some of that Platonic philosophy into their theology, and it did affect the church. But I don't want to talk about church history today or Tertullian or Augustine, even though they're great guys. I want to talk about the, what the Bible has to say about sexuality. And the Bible has some awesome stuff to say in this passage that's, that's really positive. It's not repressive. First of all, God commands great sex. Think about that. Like, look at this passage, verse 19 of Proverbs. Let her breasts 
satisfy you. That's, that's a command. Guys, if you're married, let your wife's breasts be the thing that satisfies you, not someone else, is what he's saying. And that dates way back to Genesis 1.26, where the first command that God ever gave the human race was what? Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. The first thing God ever told mankind was, go have sex. You ever think about that? It's quiet in the building. <laughs> Everybody's not sure how to respond. They're like, amen? <laughs> And I get it because, like, when we read the text, it's frankly erotic language, isn't it? It's like, it's pretty explicit. And so how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the fact that God commands it? I read a great commentary here uh, by Derek Kidner, and he said this on, on this passage in Proverbs we read. This text teaches us what history, what, what history and common sense also teach us, that when marriage is chiefly a business arrangement, not only is God's gift of sex misunderstood, but our passions, see verse 20, will seek other outlets. So the Bible doesn't have a negative view of sex. It has a very positive view of sex. And the more you study the biblical view of sex, it starts to strip you of some of your prudish or, uh, man, queasy kind of feelings about human sexuality. And so we're going to dive into that a little bit. How many of you guys have heard of the Puritans? Yeah, you know the term being puritanical, right? And when you think about the Puritans, you think about people probably who were very prudish when it came to human sexuality, right? And, but modern historians have started to uncover something as they've studied the Puritans out. That these guys, like the Puritans, you know how they got started? They wanted to purify the Church of England by becoming radically biblical and throwing out some of the traditions of man and getting back to what the Word said. As they did... They became very, very excited about God's great gift to sexuality. They did. In fact, if you go back and read some of the sermons and the writings of the Puritans, they're really explicit. Like, this is super G-rated today compared to some of the Puritan sermons that were preached in public at their gatherings. In fact, there's this uh, Yale professor in the 50s. What was his name? Um, Edmund Morgan. Professor Edmund Morgan, and he was, he was at Yale, and he, he studied the Puritans, and he said, wow, some of these sermons are great. I want to publish them in the Yale Review. And the Yale Review wouldn't let him. They said, no, it's too racy. So Puritan sermons were too racy for the liberal establishment of the 1950s. In, in fact, the Puritans, like, they were so radically biblical when it came to sex that if a woman came to the Puritan elders of a town and said, my husband is not fulfilling me sexually, he's ignoring me, he's leaving me alone, they would take him and put him in the stocks in the public square until he repented and pleased his wife. Because they took things like 1 Corinthians 6 and Proverbs 5 very seriously. Let her breasts satisfy thee. Okay, so is that, does that sound like Plato? Does that sound repressive? No, that's very forward thinking in many ways. And so sexuality was commanded by God. It's also, it's good. For those of us who have experienced it, sexuality is amazing. 
And that's why it can become such a vice and so addictive when it's used outside of its proper context. It's a, it's a beautiful, amazing thing. We love it. In fact, this passage uses the words intoxicating. Be intoxicated with your wife, with your spouse. Now, let's do a fun little test here because it's tense. It is so tense in here. Let's do a fun little test. Um, let me ask a question for you to just contemplate, not answer out loud. Are you surprised at the frankly erotic language in this text? Because if you are, you may not understand biblical Christianity. You may be laboring under a load of misconceptions. You may be looking to some kind of legalism or some theory outside of the Bible to govern your heart. Let me ask you another question. Are you offended by these words? Are they off-putting to you? Are they throwing you off today? Because if they are, you may be under what D.H. Lawrence points out. You may be more under Plato's view than Scripture's view. I mean, if, if you're more like pure than God, something's wrong. This is the Word of God, right? Amen? All right. Can I keep going? All right. <laughs> good. So, um, that's, that sex is good, right? And uh, the, in fact, verse 18 uses the word blessed. It says it's a blessing. I think blessing is a word we don't use very much in our modern language. Um, and when we do translate or use it, it, it just kind of means extremely happy, right? But, but blessing means so much more than that. In fact, the ancient word blessing means a deep satisfaction in God. A deep satisfaction in God. So when sex is used correctly in the proper context, it's deeply satisfying. And not just the act itself is satisfying, but what it points to. Because sex is a teaser. Sex points to something amazing. Amen? The Old Testament talks about it, but the New Testament's really explicit with it. For instance, if you look at like Romans 7, the first six verses, Paul's talking in Romans 7. And he says... Just like when a, a, a woman comes to her husband and is held in his embrace and fruit is born from that union out into the world, so when a Christian comes and is held in God's embrace and intimacy happens, so good things are born out into the world through that union. That's what Paul's talking about. So Paul's using sex to point to something infinitely greater. The Bible's not afraid of this topic. In fact, the Old Testament and the New Testament both refer to the church or the people of God as the bride of God or the bride of Christ. Paul basically says sex is like union with Christ. And great sex is a parable of the gospel. Great sex is a parable of the gospel. The ecstasy and the joy of sex is just a foretaste of the ecstasy and the joy of complete union with Christ. Another way to say it is the beatific vision. How many, how many of you have ever heard that term, the beatific vision? Kenny and I always say it like this, the beatific vision. Beatific. It's a theological term. And it's talking about, what's it point to? It's talking about that day. That day that we're all longing for. 
the day when we will see him and we will be changed. The Bible says we will be like him for we will see him as he is. Paul says in Corinthians that, that right now we see through a mirror darkly, but then we'll see face to face. Now we know in part, then we'll know fully and we'll be fully known. The beatific vision is this, this picture that one day we will behold him as he is and we'll be utterly changed. The idols of our heart will just melt off the throne of our heart and we will see God as he is. Are you guys tracking? Or we know the verses that say things like, right now with unveiled face, be, or yeah, beholding the glory of God, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're slowly being transformed. As we behold Jesus Christ in the word of God, we see God through theology. We're transformed. We're changed to be more like him. But in that day, it's fully going to happen. We'll be fully glorified. We'll be perfect. We'll be will be recreated fully as the self that God intended for us to be. I'm looking forward to that day. And the way the Bible talks about that day is that there will be an openness and a closure. That there will be, in that day, there will be just a, a beautiful sense of safety, yet vulnerability. And as the Bible talks about it, it's like the superlatives just start piling up and angels just wish they could look into this more. Because this day is going to be so amazing. The beatific vision. Before God, through Jesus Christ, for the first time, everything we've longed for will experience. Like everything you long for when you taste that amazing sip of wine or you eat an amazing steak or my favorite cheese, it's called Boschetto. It's a white Italian cheese with white truffle in it. And it's amazing. When I taste that, I just get oh, lost in the moment. Or if you're standing out in Torrey Pines Cliff overlooking the sea at sunset with all the brilliant colors. Any great sensational thing, including human sexuality, the, the, the authenticity, the safety, the commitment, the intimacy of that act, it points to this day that's coming. When we will be forever changed and we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. We will be naked, yet so delighted in by God that we'll be unashamed. You'll be naked. What I mean by that is you'll be seen as you truly are, down to the foundations of who you are. You'll be utterly seen and you'll be utterly accepted and delighted in because of Christ because of the gospel. That's, that's the joy. That's the ecstasy that's awaiting us. It's our hope. I hope it's your hope. Naked and unashamed by someone we respect, God will look at us through Jesus and say, I love you. And I know you say, yeah, I know that. I know he loves me. Not like this you don't. Not like this day when you experience the powerful presence of God and the glory of God, and you're safe in his embrace. Sex is a parable of the gospel. It's not just procreation. It's not just animal urges. It's not tainted or dirty or just a necessary evil or just an appetite. Sex is a glorious thing, and it's something far beyond all of those other things because it points to something amazing and beautiful. 
Do you see why, like, no philosophy comes close to this? I mean, I've searched every, every religion or philosophy that's talked about sex that I've looked into doesn't come close to this. It doesn't scratch the surface. You will be blessed, verse 18 says. If you will, if you understand sex, you will be blessed. Sex is a teaser. It's a preview. It's a trailer of things to come. It's a parable of the gospel. The Lord right now in Christ, if you're, if you're saved, the Lord looks at you in Christ and he delights in you. You're accepted. That is the reality to which great sex points. So point number two, sex is not only glorious, but sex is designed. And you have to see the positive side in order to even start talking about the negative side. You have to see what sex can be in order to talk about maybe what sex shouldn't be. And in this text, the father refers to sexuality as a cistern, as a fountain, right? Water equals sexuality. It's this metaphor. And some of the commentaries that are a little less gospel-centered say, oh, it's talking about his wife. And the father's saying, don't let your wife just run rampant through the streets and sleep with any guy. Okay, but some of the more more gospel-centered, whole counsel of God commentaries that I've read say, no, 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 it's not just talking about her. It's talking about you as well. It's talking about your entire sexual life. Don't let it just spill out onto the streets. Don't go running out chasing after everything. And that makes, that makes this point, I think, even in this text, it's saying what the whole Bible says, and that is this, that sex only works between one man and one woman in an inclusive, or I'm sorry, exclusive, not inclusive. (laughs) Strike that from the recording. (laughs) This is the wrong kind of church, man. (laughs) Sex only works in an exclusive, permanent covenant relationship called marriage. it's, It's meant to be in a place where I can say to somebody, I love you with all of my life. I belong to you completely, exclusively, and permanently. And you can't say that unless you're married. That's what Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you mustn't have sex with a prostitute. Don't you know that if you're one with her sexually, then you're one with her? And you you won't track the logic of that Okay, unless you get the purpose of sex. That the ultimate purpose of sex is the, it's the ultimate unitive act where a human soul cleaves to God and the grace of God penetrates our life. As the, as the Puritans would say it. That as you cleave to God, as you grab hold of him as you submit and surrender to him and you say, I love you, I trust you, I'm committing to you that his love, his grace, his power flows into us. That's the glory of sex. That's the positive. Okay, and you can't understand the negative without talking about that. But this oneness that Paul's talking about is this. He's saying this physical union of sex is a visual aid for the union in every other area of your life. So, in other words, we're, we're, we're supposed to have complete union with somebody when we have sex with them. So not just physical union, but that physical union points to emotional union, 
to be legally one, to be emotionally one, to be economically one, to be socially one, and that only happens in marriage. That's why Paul says it's, it's monstrous to just have oneness with somebody physically, but to avoid oneness with them in every other area of your life. You say, man, I want sex, but I don't want to marry you. I want sex and sexual union. I want sexual oneness with you, but I don't want sexual purity with you. I don't, I, I, I don't want sexual commitment to you. I don't want to be one with you financially. I don't want to be one with you legally, just in the sexual act. I mean, look at the heavenly analogy. God gives us everything, doesn't he? But then God calls us to commit to him. He doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, just come to me whenever you feel like it, chase all the other gods, all that stuff, and I'm just going to be busy blessing you and giving you everything you want. No, you have to commit to God in order to have the intimacy, in order to have all of that stuff flowing into your life. That's, that's a positive view of sex. And people say the Christian view of sex, man, that view of no sex outside of marriage, that's based on a negative view of sex. No, no, not at all. It's based on the most positive, lovely, glorious view in the world. It's based on pointing to something amazing and unique and special. And I have to handle one objection before I, I move on, because I know as we listen to this, we say, some of us, man, that sounds repressive. And I think the reason that we say maybe it sounds repressive is because of what Freud has done to us. And I know Freud's an easy, easy boogeyman to get after, and he's dead, but I, I think he's wrong in this, okay? So um, Freud talks about the id, and the superego, the id. Anybody remember that from Psychology 101? So the id is your internal drives, and your superego is your conscience. And Freud would say that your id, your, your internal drives, your sexual drive comes from within you, but your conscience comes from outside of you, from your social constructs, from your mom and dad, from the school you attended. And, he, and here's the deal. How does Freud know that? He doesn't. He doesn't know that. And the Bible would say that Freud's being way too simplistic with that point. That actually, not only do our sexual drives come from within us, but our conscience comes from within us as well. Okay, and let me show you what I mean um, for an explanation. Uh, if, if you say something like, don't commit adultery, that's kind of like saying, don't eat fatty foods. Now, I have a desire for fatty foods. It's very powerful. And, uh, <laughs> yes, and, um, I mean, I desire them. I, that desire comes from the inside. It's natural. My parents didn't teach me to love fatty foods. It's just there. And um, so, also, though, my nature will be violated if I just eat, eat, eat fatty foods. Like, what would I look like? How much would I weigh? Don't answer that, because I'm already kind of there, because I do love fatty foods, and I... Way too much, right? Now, I have both a natural reason to give in to that desire for fatty foods, but I also have a natural reason to hold off and abstain from fatty foods because I don't want it to ruin my life, right? That's, that's something that comes from within me. That's not just from outside of me. Sure, there's TV shows that talk about it, but that's something that is common sense to me. And the Bible says we desire both sex and we desire commitment. That that's something that we were created for, designed for. It comes from within us. It's no more repressive to say, don't commit adultery than it is to say, don't go eat a bunch of fatty foods. 
That's not repressive. That's a very healthy, natural, common sense way to talk to somebody. So it'll destroy you, right? It'll destroy your life if you just go to Del Mar Fair later on this year and you just like live there all summer long and eat all the deep fried candy bars and the Krispy Kreme donut sandwiches, right? And you just live on that. It'll destroy your life. It'll destroy your health. And it's the same thing. If you let the fountain of your sexuality spill out on the streets and you just fulfill its every desire, it will destroy your life. It goes against your nature. It goes against what you were created for. And this text says it leads to death, not life. Because the purpose of sex is a unitive act. And I, I just want to appeal to your feelings for a second. Because I think your feelings will point to the truth of this for you if you, if you let them. Because I, I think our culture, probably many of us in this room, have engaged in extramarital sex or, or premarital sex of some kind. And, and so when, just honestly, like think about this. Do you remember how strange it felt? The first time you gave yourself to somebody sexually and you, you opened yourself up and were vulnerable and then when they left because there was no commitment, they could just go out and be with anybody else. Remember how strange that felt? And maybe you chalked it up to jealousy. You're like, oh man, I'm just being, I'm just being jealous. No, that's, that's how God made you. That's how God created you. Sex is a way of committing yourself. Sex is a way of softening your heart and opening you up to trust somebody. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful act, and it's meant to be a kind of covenant glue, if you will. It's meant to bind you to somebody who you're committed to for life. That's what it's meant for. It's very powerful. That's why if it's like a one-way street, where you're open, where you're vulnerable, where you're trusting, but that's not reciprocated, it feels wrong because it is wrong. It's broken. It's not the way you were created to engage in sexuality. So when we use sexuality outside of marriage, we have to actually fight against its natural use. Have you noticed that? Maybe Probably you guys are all good Christians and you've never done any of that stuff, but maybe for some of your friends that have. Um, and, and you look at their life and you say, man, I notice that they have to harden themselves against sexuality softening effects. That the more that they engage in those kinds of extramarital affairs, they, they become less and less trusting of people. They stop opening themselves up. They start closing themselves off and building a wall around their heart. Because sex... It's covenant glue. It's designed to celebrate and revitalize a permanent union that God's put together. And the more you continually revisit it within that relationship, the more it does open you up to one another. And it builds trust. And it, and it glues you together, in a sense, at a soul level. God designed sexuality for something beautiful, not just in what it points to, but also in what it is here on the earth. Sex is designed to celebrate that union. And if you use it outside of that context, it works against itself. It becomes nauseating. In fact, there's a great illustration of this in the Bible. It's in um, 2 Samuel 13. You guys heard the story of Ammon? Ammon, he, um, one of David's sons, falls, falls in love 
I think, it, I think it kind of falls in lust. But it says he falls in love with his half-sister, which isn't a valid wedding, a valid marriage. But he still is, is pursues her. He brings her into his room. He seduces her, and he takes her to bed. And then the text says something really telling. It says he was sick with love for her before. But with all the, the strength of the love that he had for her, after it was done, he hated her even more than he had loved her before. And he said, be gone. Get out of my room. And kicked her out. And that this story is such a broken story, and it leads to so many broken things. And it's a tale of what sexuality outside of marriage, I mean, it's a very extreme tale, but it's a tale of what actually happens in our hearts and souls as we take something outside of the way, the context God made it. C.S. Lewis says, I love it, um, I don't have the quote in front of me, but in Mere Christianity, he says, all of our impulses are good. They're all great in their proper context. The desires that you have for sexuality are great, but once they get out of their proper context, that's when they become debilitating and they start leading to death, not life. And that's exactly what this passage says. Then finally, this last point, really briefly, is the power of sex. Verse 21. Verse 21 in the text says, A man's ways, Proverbs 5.21, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. That word paths, there is a very telling Hebrew word. It has to do with a, a, a wagon trail and the wagon path. And as the, as the wheels would roll over the same spot, they would carve a groove, a rut into the ground. And they would continually drive over that same spot and would carve a groove and a rut into that spot. That's a wagon rut. And sex creates trenches. It creates ruts in your heart. Sex is powerful. It's covenant glue. It's meant to drive you toward that same person. But the problem is when we use sex outside of the context of marriage, when we commit adultery, when we fornicate, when we do these types of things, it actually drives our affections the wrong way. And all of a sudden, the emotions, the, the waters of emotion from our heart flow down these trenches in, in broken patterns, and we get stuck in ruts that we can't get out of. Sex is addictive. It's powerful. It's addicting if it's not used properly. And this passage tells us that sex leads to either freedom or bondage. That sex is highly addicting and it leads to either freedom or bondage. Look at verses 22-23 as we close. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he's led astray. I have conversations all the time in this community. This world is broken. One of the biggest struggles we have in Western civilization right now with the advent of the internet and with anything sexually at anybody's fingertips is that people are struggling with this more than ever before. Our fountains flowing all over the streets, if you will. It's running rampant through the streets of the city. Many of us struggle with deep sexual problems and addictions. We, we resemble more, I think, this guy in verses 22, where the iniquities of him ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin, and he dies for lack of discipline. What's the hope? 
Man, that's a heavy, another heavy sermon, Vince? Jeez, two for two. Now there's hope today. There's really good news. And I, I find it first in this text, and then we're going to hop over the New Testament as we wrap it up. But in this text, the Father says something really telling. He says, he says, why? Why be captivated with an adulterous woman? Why? Now, he wouldn't say why if it was somehow impossible not to be. Right? He says, why be captivated? Because you don't have to be captivated. You don't have to be addicted. Just because the wagon grooves have been carved deep into your life, and every time you get tempted, you go to that place. And every time you struggle, you're still struggling with that same sin. That doesn't have to be your story. There's good news today, and I'm going to hop over to Titus chapter 2 to close this out. And Paul says this in Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation, what? What's it say? Yeah, it's appeared to all people. And what's it do to us? What's it do for us? It trains us. It teaches us. The grace of God, the knowledge, the gospel knowledge of God's grace at work in your life. The truth of the gospel that you are loved and accepted and provided for fully because of Jesus Christ. That truth, the grace of God, as you look at that truth, as you let that truth come into your life and transform your heart, it will change you. It has the power to free you. It has the power to repave the streets of your heart, if you will. The good news of the gospel. How do you deal? How do you deal with the ruts in your life? Maybe you're stuck in a rut. Maybe you have sexual problems. Maybe the wagons have dug deep trenches in your life. And you say, I can't get out. I've tried. I've tried everything. I put net nanny or whatever they call it nowadays on my computer, and I've got accountability partners, and I'm doing everything I can, and I'm still struggling because the ruts are too deep, and I can't escape, and I'm entangled, and the cords have wrapped around me, and I feel like I'm going down to death. How do I get out of this? Where's the hope? The hope is in the gospel. The hope is in Jesus Christ. See, the guilt, the fear, the shame, any other motivation you try to use to free yourself, it won't free you. It won't untangle you. So how do you deal with it? you got to deal with it, the gospel. I just want you to close your eyes with me. Will you say, just, just repeat after me this simple phrase. I want you to say it the first time, and then I want you to say it like you mean it the second time. Okay? Say this, I'm so delighted in. I'm unashamed. Say it again like you believe it. I'm so delighted in. I'm unashamed. Until you know that because of the gospel, you're naked and unashamed, then to be naked before anyone else will be either disgusting or consuming and addicting. I want to leave you with that, so I'm going to say it again. Until you know that you're naked and unashamed and loved, that God delights in you, then to be naked before anyone else sexually will either lead you to be a prude or a pagan. 
with your sexuality. C.S. Lewis has this quote, and I, I close. He says this, Only true love frees us from lust. Only true love frees us from lust. And guys, in the gospel, that's what we get. The true, purest love of God. And the more you believe, you can actually own, not just on an intellectual level, but it creeps down into your heart and it melts your heart and it starts to work its way out into your life, that you are loved and accepted by the God of the universe. The more you get that, the more free you'll be from any of the sexual things that have bound you and tied up your life, from any of the situations that seem helpless that you're just stuck in. You can be free today. And so we're going to come down and have communion and we're actually going to have uh, two or three people come down and, and um, be available for you if you'd like to get prayed for as well. Because we believe in the power of our God and we, we, we pray to him, we ask him for his help here. So there's some questions for communion I'm going to run through real quick. And then um, we're going to have everybody come down, take communion if you like, come pray if you like. If you're uncomfortable, if you're newer and you just want to hang back, feel free to hang back. We're just going to have about five or ten minutes and then we're going to sing a song all together and dismiss. But here's the questions. The questions are, are based on repenting, believing the gospel, and then committing by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's the questions that you can ask yourselves in communion group if you're comfortable with it. Repent. Where has sex ensnared you? In your life, where are you bound? Believe. How does the gospel that you're loved, accepted, and provided for in Christ, how does that free you? You can be free today. I believe it. And then lastly, commit. How does the Holy Spirit empower your ongoing freedom in your life? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit has the power to continually set you free? and keep you, keep you living in freedom and victory. Do you believe that? Do you believe God's inside of you? So I'm going to pray, and then um, I'm going to ask uh, John Romero and Kirstie to come down and, and stand up here. For anybody that'd like to have prayer, a couple of guys and a gal, just come on down, and you can ask them for prayer if you're a little more comfortable one-on-one -on -one than in a group. And um, we're going to pray together, we're going to take communion together, and then we're going to sing together and celebrate together because the good news of the gospel is you're free indeed. Amen? Lord, I pray um, over this next portion of the service that people who are bound would be set free. You said that that's why you came. You said you came to set the captive free, God, and we believe that. We believe there's people here who might have strongholds in their life they haven't been able to kick, addictions, broken patterns, broken relationships, moving on from one relationship to another, serial monogamy that leaves them hurting and broken. People going outside their marriage and, and hiding, hiding the sin in their life and, and living under a, a load of guilt and shame and fear. God, I pray you would break any strongholds in this church, in people's lives, in marriages. Holy Spirit, I pray you would do a work that we can't on our own. At the end of the day, unless you build a house, we're laboring in vain. We can preach beautiful sermons. We can sing beautiful songs. But unless you do the work, this is all in vain. So I ask you to have your way, Lord, to move in our lives, move in our hearts and our homes and do a work in New City so we would be free, so we would be that looking glass through which 
this, this longing, hurting, broken world can look and find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.